Romans chapter 9 dealt with God's rejection of Israel as the, the national Israel, as a chosen nation. Romans 10 discussed how that the majority of the individual Jews had been rejected because of their unbelief. So chapter 9 dealt with nationality, the national Israel. But chapter 10 dealt with individuality, individual Jews. And just because national Israel was rejected didn't mean the individual Jews were rejected. Individual Jews were rejected under the, 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 the thought process given in chapter 10 based on their own rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of their own disbelief, they were rejected. And now in chapter 11, we're going to wrap up that section, this parenthetical portion of Romans that deals with Israel. And Paul is going to address the fact that there exists a remnant a remnant of Israel. A remnant is a, a portion, a, a piece that has been pulled out, that that is left over, that which has been set aside. Amen. The remnant is that portion of Israel that has not rejected the Messiah and has, by grace, through faith, obtained the salvation that Jesus brought to the whole world. The main point of Romans chapter 11 is that the rejection of the Jews is not a complete and total thing. God has not categorically set aside every person that is Jewish. God's desire and intention is still the same as it always was to save as many Jews as is possible. And that's the main focus of Romans chapter 11. There will be a remnant there will be a portion of the Jews who will be saved. And their salvation is what the whole chapter focuses on. Those Jews who believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be a part of the New Testament church. Not by virtue of their natural birth. Not by virtue of the fact that they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. Not by virtue of their law keeping. But by virtue of the fact that they have been born again just like every other member of the New Testament church. They've received the gospel, they've obeyed it, and they've been born again. Let's get into the text. Romans chapter 1, I mean Romans chapter 11. I was hoping to take about 10 verses this morning, but I'm only going to get through 6. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. It says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite and of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Hath God not cast away his people which he for... I'm sorry. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works then it is no more grace, the otherwise work is no more work. Amen. Those are where we're going to, those are the scriptures we're going to cover this morning. We'll end at verse 6. Beginning back in verse 1, I'm going to read it for context, and we're going to talk about it. It says, I say then, this is the question that sets the premise for chapter 11. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I am also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So the question that, that sets forth the premise for the entire chapter, hath God cast away his people? is preceded by the words, I say then. And then indicates that this question arises from the previous two chapters. We talked about how God rejected national Israel. We've talked about how God rejected individual Jews. And the natural presumption then would be maybe God rejected all Jews. And so the question then is, has God cast away all of his people? 
And if God has rejected national Israel, if he's rejected the, the unbelieving Jews, then, then perhaps he's rejected all of his people. So the question, to put it very bluntly, is has God excluded Jews from the New Testament church altogether? Has he shut them out of the new covenant? Has he, has he made it so that they cannot be saved? In other words, is it pointless for Paul to preach to the Jews? We just heard how that God rejected them. We just heard how that God has turned away from them because of their unbelief. Is it pointless then for Paul to continue to preach to the Jews? The con construct of that question in the Greek implies a negative answer. You know how you can ask a question in such a way that you're implying that you already know the answer and the answer is no? That's the way that it is given in the Greek. The construct implies the negative answer, which automatically follows God forbid, very emphatically. God forbid. Don't, it can't be that way. Of course God has not rejected the Jews. After all, Paul himself is a Jew. Matter of fact, he's a Jew of the Jews. He's a, he's, a, he's a Jew of the highest order. He is a descendant of Abraham. He is an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. And he can trace his lineage all the way back. He is a Jew. And that's not, the pedigree of Paul is not an insignificant pedigree. He can literally trace his roots back to Abraham. He traces them through the tribe of Benjamin. And that is very significant because after the Israelites are carried off into captivity in the Old Testament, after they, they go into that, that place where they are carried away from their homeland and carried into captivity, only two tribes are restored to the homeland and remain intact into the New Testament. And Benjamin is one of those tribes. So Paul is saying, I can trace my lineage. It is unbroken. His credentials are as solid as any Jew's credentials can be. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. My lineage is unbroken. There is no lost tribe for me to consider. My people are intact, and I can trace my roots. As Jewish tradition is, Paul can recite what his daddy was able to recite before him, what his granddaddy was able to recite before him, and his granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy all the way down to Abraham. He can tell his lineage. He knows exactly where he came from. And so Paul can say emphatically, God hasn't rejected the Jews. After all, I'm a Jew. Amen? Verse 2 says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying. So, the first portion of verse 2 is a reference to a couple of Old Testament passages. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 22, the Lord promises he will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. In Psalm chapter 94 and verse 14, the psalmist says, For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. What Paul does at the beginning of verse 2 is he takes those future tense promises of God from the Old Testament and he restates them in the past tense. In other words, what he says is God has kept his word. God promised he would not forsake Israel. And I can say definitively, God has not forsaken Israel. God has done exactly what he said he would do. Now, he describes Israel as the people which God has foreknown or foreknew. Some take that verse and that word as evidence of election or predestination, believing that Paul is implying that God decided ahead of time by divine election that some of Israel would be saved and the rest would be rejected. By that way of thinking, those who were among the lucky chosen few 
were the ones who God foreknew. And they were preserved because God chose them ahead of time. They were the preserved remnant of Israel, chosen by God because he foreknew them. He predestined them. However, both the Old Testament passages which Paul has affirmed in his statement and the current passage that's contained in verse 2 are references to Israel as a nation, not to individual Jews. When Paul says that God foreknew Israel as a people, he is saying that when God called them to be his people, he was already aware of the kind of people that they would be. Nothing about them took him by surprise. He already knew about their weaknesses. He already knew about their failures. He already knew about their predisposition to turn towards unbelief and idolatry. He already knew that they were a people who had great flaws. He already knew that there would be times that they would not be faithful to him, that they would turn their back on him. But he chose them anyway. He knew the nation of Israel. He could see through the eons of time. He understood what was going to come to pass, but he chose them anyway because he knew that throughout their history, while there would be some who would be unfaithful, while there would be some who would reject his word, while there would be some who would worship idols, while there would be some who would turn their back on the grace and the mercy of God, there would always be some among the nation of Israel. There would always be a faithful few, a remnant among the Jews uh, who would follow after him. Think about it for a minute. God knew from the outset that Israel would never be a perfect nation. He knew from the beginning, he who knows the end from the beginning, he who knows all things before they ever occur, he knew from the beginning that there would always be persistent rebellion in the nation of Israel. He knew from the beginning that there would always be tares among the wheat, that those that counted themselves among the Jews, would there would be in that number some who were, in fact, wolves in sheep's clothing. But he did not let that stop him from calling them to be his people. Because he knew that there would always be a persistent few in that number. That there would always be the remnant of Israel. A people who would be loyal to him in spite of everything. A people who would be obedient to him throughout the ages. He understood when he called the nation that among the nation there would be those that would rebel. There would be those that would walk away from him. There would be those that would turn their back on his grace. But he also understood that in that nation there would be those uh, who would put their heart uh, in his hands uh, who would put their faith in him and who would follow after him there would always be a remnant that would serve God the remnant were those who would never forsake him those who would hold fast to his promises those who would genuinely seek to live for him and because he foreknew Israel he foreknew that there would always be a group who would follow after him. That doesn't mean that he predestined them. That doesn't mean that he individually selected them. It just means that he understood that in that conglomeration called the nation of Israel, there would be some with backslidden hearts. There would be some who would who would forsake the grace of God. There would be some who would take the goodness of God for granted. But there were always going to be some uh, who were faithful to God, uh, who were obedient to God, who would seek out his ways and walk in his righteousness, that there would all always be a remnant. What a beautiful statement about the people of God. If you hang around the church long enough, you're going to discover there are hypocrites in the church. 
If you hang around the church long enough, you're going to find unfaithfulness in the midst of the faithful. You'll find those who are not in practice what they profess to be on Sunday. There will be those who will walk after the flesh instead of following after the Spirit. Uh, they may not be easy at first to discern. They may not be easy at first to, to pick out and distinguish from the rest. They, they know how to look the part. They know how to dress right. They know how to say all the right things. They know how to fit into the church. Uh, but there are indeed tares that grow among the wheat. Uh, there are indeed wolves that lurk in sheep's clothing. And it may surprise you to, to discover that worldliness does indeed infiltrate the church. That there are people whose motives are less than good. There are people who, who are, are less, than, less concerned with following after God than they are with following after the traditions of, and, 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 the, and the fads and the, and the cycles of worldliness and, and persistent ungodliness that surrounds them. But God in his loving patience always knew that that would be the case. He always knew that the assembly of people who would call themselves the church would have within their ranks those who, like Judas and his 12 disciples, uh, would betray the love and the mercy of God for the material things of this world. That knowledge, however never stopped him from establishing his church. It never stopped him from declaring, I'm going to have a people who are going to be called by my name uh, any more than it stopped him from calling the nation of Israel to be his people because God knows that if you look a little deeper, anybody can come to church and find the hypocrites. Anybody can come. Listen, honey, you're not special because you can find problems in the church. Anybody can find problems in the church. Anybody can find people who are less than what they say they are. But God knows that there will always be a remnant. If you look a little deeper, if you stick around a little longer, if you look beyond the faults and the flaws, you're going to discover that in the church uh, there are a group of people uh, among the crowd that gathers here on Sunday morning. Uh, there are a group of people uh, who are faithful to the Word of God. Uh, they are not man pleasers. Uh, they are God pleasers. Uh, and their religion is not an act. Uh, it's not a sham. Uh, it's not just a bunch of put on. Uh, they are genuinely in pursuit uh, of the promises of God. Uh, they are genuinely concerned uh, with living a life uh, that is pleasing to God. God knows this. You can find the fault and you can point it out and you can declare it to the whole world. Somebody was unfaithful in the church. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, God already knew that before you got there. But what God also knows uh, is that in the middle of all the hypocrites, in the middle of all the broken humanity that is in the house of God, there is a core group of people, the remnant, uh, who are faithful, uh, who never walked away from him, uh, who kept their eyes on the prize, uh, who are pursuing godliness and righteousness and holiness and trying to live a life that is pleasing unto God. So the question is, why does God tolerate the unfaithful? Why doesn't he just separate the tares from the wheat? And the answer is as simple as it is profound. God allows the unfaithful to gather with the faithful for the same reason that Paul continues to preach to the Jews. His goal is that all would be saved. And the only way that they will ever have the chance to be saved is if they hear the anointed preached word of God. You can't believe in him of whom you have not heard and you cannot hear except it be preached unto you. Amen. That's why Paul keeps declaring the gospel to the Jews uh, because it isn't too late for them to join the remnant. 
It isn't too late for them to change their direction. That's why God allows the unfaithful to meet with the faithful on Sunday morning and the house of God doesn't go through and mark and distinguish and say, you don't belong here because it's never too late for you to change your direction. It's never too late for you to hear the preached word of God. Paul keeps preaching to the Jews for the same reason that the pastor stands in the pulpit and preaches to the faithful and the unfaithful alike because God hasn't given up on you yet. Amen. In order to establish the presence of a historic remnant, Paul turns to the time of Elijah. I know the verse says Elias, but it means Elijah. The second half of the verse contains, first of all, one of those words that is not in usage at all anymore. It was in usage in the 1600s when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, but it has fallen completely out of use in the intervening centuries, and we don't even have any idea when you first read it what the word what, W-O-T, even means, but I can tell you what it means. It means no, as in know ye not. It's a simple statement. What Paul has written is, know ye not, or don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, and verse 3 contains the rest of that, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. And dig down thine altars. And I am left alone. And they seek my life. Paul is referring to 1 Kings chapter 19 where Elijah in an odd turn of events made intercession against the people of Israel. Rarely do you see the, peop- the, the prophets interceding against the people of God. Normally, you see the prophets interceding for the people of God. But here, Elijah's frustration and despair causes him to cry out against Israel. Ahab and Jezebel have succeeded in turning the people away from God and turning them to the worship of the idols of Baal. And despite the fact that God used Elijah to demonstrate his superiority over Baal at Mount Carmel, despite the fact that that that, that triumphant event on Mount Carmel has occurred, Elijah has been chased into hiding. And now he fearfully resides in a cave at Horeb and he's, he's, he's trembling and he's scared for his very life. And God came to Elijah at Horeb, met him in his cave and asked him the same question twice. What are you doing here? Both times Elijah answered with the complaint that Paul paraphrases in this verse. Lord... They've killed the prophets. They've dug down the altars. And I am left alone, and they seek my life. Elijah's words sum up his perception of the religious crisis at hand. The prophets were being murdered. The altars were being destroyed. And Elijah was sure that if he left that cave in Horeb, that he was the only one that was left that was faithful to God and that the very people of God that he was a prophet to would seek him out and take his life. Verse 4 says, But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. The response shows God's view of the situation. Elijah is not alone after all. God has reserved for himself a remnant. Uh, There are some that Elijah doesn't know about uh, that remain faithful uh, to God. Uh, There are some that Elijah hasn't heard of uh, who are faithful to the God of Israel. They never bowed their knee to Baal. The scripture said 7,000 men. The commentators say that implies women and children besides. The number is not 
a number that we know. We only know there were 7,000 men, and that may even be a statement of perfection. We don't know, but we know this. There was a remnant. There was a group. When everybody else turned their back, when everybody else walked away, when everybody in the church was going the wrong direction, uh, there was a group that said, I'm going to stand on my faith. Uh, I'm not backing down from what God has promised me. I'm going to stay faithful to the word of God. I'm not changing a thing. Amen. I'm going to be faithful to what God has called me to be. What I want you to notice about this remnant, those that have been kept aside by God, God reserved for himself, is that they were elected by God because they have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. It was their actions. It was the expression of their obedience to God that caused them to be numbered among the remnant. God did not arbitrarily select a few out of the whole nation of Israel that he determined ahead of time would be the remnant and that he set aside and said, I'm going to keep these for myself. He kept those who remained faithful to the Word of God. He kept those who were obedient to the Word of God. They refused to put any other God before Him. They remained steadfast in their faithful obedience to the, the commandment of God to worship Him and Him alone. And they never bent their knee to the, to the idol of Baal. It was their obedience not the election of God ahead of time, but their obedience that caused them to be numbered among the remnant. Now verse 5 says, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So now Paul draws the parallel. Even though it seems as if all the Jews have forsaken God, as if they have all rejected the gospel message of salvation, there is indeed at this present time a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant just like in Elijah's day who have been kept by God. The remnant has experienced New Testament salvation. They've been saved by the grace of God. The emphasis here is on grace as opposed to works. It's intended to draw a sharp distinction between the Jews who have rejected the gospel and those who have obeyed it. The Jews that have rejected the gospel have chosen instead to put their confidence in their own righteousness, their own works of righteousness to save them. But those who have obeyed the gospel have placed their confidence in the righteousness of God. The election of grace is no more predestination now than it was in Elijah's time. God didn't predestinate who would be in the remnant in Elijah's day. He chose those who didn't bend their knee to the idol bell. And so it is today. God has elected those who have responded to the gospel message in obedience to the word of God. In Elijah's time, the remnant was defined by those who refused to bend their knee. In Paul's time, the remnant is defined by those who have accepted the grace of God by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? And that brings us to verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. The first thing I need to say is this verse contains two sentences that say exactly the same thing. The second sentence is the negative corollary to the first sentence. There's only one concept given, 
And so we're going to address the two sentences as one thought, as one concept. The concept in a nutshell is this. The Jewish remnant is saved by grace. Grace only comes through faith. It cannot be earned by works because if it is earned, grace will cease to be grace. Because if it's earned, it's owed. It's not unmerited favor. You gained it. You earned it. It was owed to you. Amen? So the remnant, the Jews who are saved, are saved just like everyone else in the church. They're saved by grace through faith, not by Jewish legalism. When Paul says that it is by grace, that if it is by grace, then it is no more of works. He's not stating that grace was once earned by works, but is now no longer earned by works. What he means is that once you understand that salvation comes only by grace, it excludes the notion that it could ever come by works. Once you understand it's the free gift of God alone and you can't earn it, it excludes the idea that you could ever earn it. They can no longer believe, as they once did, that their works might save them. God never saved anybody on the basis of their works. Salvation was always based on faithful obedience to the Word of God. Now, it's crucial here that we correctly understand the meaning of the word works. Paul is referring to the works of the law, just like he did in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. We set this, all of this that we're saying this morning harmonizes with Romans chapter 3. As a matter of fact, a lot of it, you're hearing the same thoughts, the same concepts that we heard back then when we talked about how you didn't earn salvation. It came by the grace of God. Works is defined in the framework of Romans as any response to the law or commandments of God in an effort to justify oneself. It's an effort to earn salvation. Now, that's important because what has happened is some have expanded the term works in this verse to include anything that human beings do. Now, you got to get this. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about self-justification on the basis of the law or the commandments of God. Some have interpreted it to mean anything that human beings do. When they do that, they seek to invalidate the instructions in the Word of God regarding what we should do in order to be saved. Let me explain why that's so important. If you'll remember, the question in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 was, men and brethren, what shall we do? That was the question. What shall we do? And Peter responded by giving them instructions on what they should do in order to be saved. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's what he said to do. Amen. Now those who wrongly expand the concept of works to include anything a person does use that idea to reinforce their misinterpretation of verse 5 and conclude that the election of grace can include, cannot include anything that a person does. That means that your repentance isn't necessary for salvation. That means that your baptism in Jesus' name isn't necessary for salvation. That even means that uh, the infilling of the Holy Ghost or an ongoing life of holiness and separation unto God, it doesn't matter what you do because it's not of works but of grace.
when you expand the concept of works to include anything a person does, including the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you teach that you're saved on the basis of grace no matter what you do. In their expanded definition of works, anything that you do has to be excluded from salvation. The problem with that approach is that when you carry it to its logical conclusion, even believing, even faith, becomes something that you do. Now follow with me. In order to have faith, an individual has to choose to believe what has been preached to them. In order to have faith, an individual has to choose to believe what has been preached to them. One preacher can preach to a room full of people, but not everybody who hears the word is saved. They have to believe. How can they believe except they hear? They got to hear before they can believe, but they have to believe. And among the crowd that hears the preached word of God, not everyone will believe. And so the believing itself becomes an act of work. It becomes an act of doing. And under the expanded definition of works, that works includes anything that we do, then believing itself becomes excluded from the process of salvation. The end result of election-based predestination salvation is that even faith itself becomes a grace-canceling work of the flesh. In the end, those who believe that way, now, they may not start here. They start with what is called Calvinism. They end with what is called hyper-Calvinism. And in the end, they come to the conclusion that God gives the measure of faith. Therefore, it is God who is wholly responsible apart from any response on the part of humanity for determining who will be saved and who will not. God chooses who has faith and who doesn't. That's the end result of predestination. Paul said, you can't believe unless you hear. But the end result of predestination says, you can't believe unless God has put faith in you to believe. And so when the preacher preaches, it's not to whosoever will, is to whosoever has been predetermined to hear and believe. Are you with me still? So the door that is open when you expand the definition of works to include the response to the gospel is a door that ends in this predestination idea. Now, it started as a means to justify the idea that all you have to do is believe in order to be saved, that faith alone is all that it takes to be saved. But my friend, the Scripture never demonstrates faith alone. Faith is never alone. Faith always comes with obedience. God calls Abraham to leave Ur of Chaldee. And Abraham believes God, so what does he do? He leaves. God demands that Noah build an ark to save his family. Noah believes God. So what does he do? He obeys. Faith doesn't exist in the word of God apart from obedience. So it started as an idea to justify the idea that you can be saved by faith alone, that that's all that it takes to be saved. But it runs amok when it's carried to the logical conclusion because faith ultimately falls under the broader definition of works and becomes a work in and of itself. Now, let's get back into the word. I've talked enough about crazy ideas. Let's talk about what Paul means. Let's go back to Elijah. That is the foundation upon which Paul is building. The elect in Elijah's day were those who did not bend their knee to Baal. Their inclusion in the remnant was based on something they did. Not their law-keeping, per se. Not their self-justifying 
keeping of the law, but their obedience of faith. They believed that there is only one God, and him alone shall thou worship. They understood. Uh, they may not have understood everything there was to know about God, but it was ingrained in their heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. Uh, there is no God beside him. There is no God before him. There is no God behind him. There has never been another God. There is none that can stand with him or compare to him. He is God all by himself, and him and him alone shall thou worship. And it was their faith in that, that, oh, that command of the Word of God, their faith in the identity of God, believing there's only one God and Him alone shall thou worship, that caused them to, in obedience to the Word of God not to bend their knee. It was their faithful obedience that brought them into the remnant. The grace of God was conditioned on their response. Listen, they were elected according to grace. That was not a violation of their free will. That was not a violation of their ability to choose for themselves. Nor was it a violation of God's decision to save on the basis of grace by faith. They were elected on the basis of their response. They had to believe and obey. If you had bent your knee to the prophet Baal or the idol Baal, then said, well, I, I do believe there's only one God. I'm just doing this because everybody else is doing it. Your faith was invalidated. You weren't counted among the remnant because you said you believed it was God. You weren't counted among the remnant because you professed belief. Now hear me. It wasn't enough to say, I believe that God is God alone. That belief was demonstrated. It was validated by the action, by the obedience of that belief. Because I believe there's only one God. I will not bend my knee to another. Amen? So faith is ultimately expressed by doing. That's the example that Paul draws from. To take this and divorce every kind of doing from salvation to say that it can't include any response to the gospel is to divorce it from the very foundation that Paul's building on. It's to divorce it from the very example that Paul is using. Faith is expressed by obedience. That's why James declares in James chapter 2 and verse 17, faith without works is dead. It isn't valid. It doesn't exist. It's not enough just to say, I accept the Lord as my Savior. Amen? It's not enough just to say a, a mental assent. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and I accept him into my heart. If you believe that he's a Savior and you accept him into your heart, then you obey the word of God. Amen? They said, what do we need to do? And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Not just he that believeth, but he that believes and does something with that belief. He has to react in obedience to the word of God. So Paul was not discrediting the obedience of faith when he said it can't be of works, he was invalidating the legalism of law-keeping, self-justification. It won't ever happen by the works of the law. It won't ever happen by the works of the flesh. That doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your, your obedient response to the preached word of God. The works that Paul referenced were the works of the flesh, the works of the law not the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God himself has established what the faithful response should be to the gospel. He gave Peter, Jesus Christ gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you open, whatever you preach, when they said, what shall we do? Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. God decides what I have to do in order to be saved. And God declared through his man, 
through the anointed word of God, repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. God has declared in his word without any doubt what we have to do in order to be saved. That is completely compatible with the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. I do not save myself in the act of repentance, but my faith responds to the grace of God, and God forgives my sins as a result of my faithful obedience. I repent of my sins. Amen? I do not purify myself in the act of baptism, but my faith responds to the grace of God in obedience. And God washes away my sins because I'm obedient to what I was told to do. I'm baptized in his name. And I cannot, there is no way possible, it's not, I don't have, there is no human ability that can cause me to be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. But as my faith responds to the grace of God, I surrender myself wholly to him and he fills me with his spirit. That's an act of, of the grace of God through my faith filling me with his spirit, my obedience to his word. My obedience to the gospel, my obedience to the command, repent and be baptized and be filled with the Holy Ghost, does not cancel the grace of God. Instead, it is the very expression of the faith that grace uses to save me. We are saved by grace through faith. My faith motivates me to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is very important. I spent a lot of time here this morning because it pretty much sums up the main message of the book of Romans. The only way for a sinner to be saved is by grace through faith, not of their own righteous works. You can't save yourself. You can't do it of your own works. It's obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there is no way to have a salvation by works and a salvation by grace the two are mutually exclusive the faith-filled response to the gospel as embodied in repentance water baptism in jesus name receiving the gift of the holy ghost living a life of holiness and separation unto god continuing to live for god none of that depends on my righteousness all of it depends on his righteousness I'm not righteous by anything that I've done. I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace, not by our own personal holiness or righteousness. We're saved by grace. Indeed, in repentance and in the waters of baptism, we reject any claim to our own righteousness and we declare ourselves sinners in need of salvation. Amen? We recognize, even as our faith responds to the gospel, that we're not good enough. We haven't earned it. We don't have any rightful claim to it. We claim the grace of God when we repent of our sins and we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's point in today's passage is that there is a remnant among the Jews who are saved, not because they're better law keepers than the rest but because they have responded to the gospel in faithful obedience. Indeed, Paul himself has obeyed the gospel message that Peter preached in Acts 2.38. Listen, Paul repented of his sins. Paul was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. And Paul was filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And Paul was endeavoring to live a life of separation and holiness unto God. He has been saved by grace through faith, not at the exclusion of the Acts 2.38 message, but through the Acts 2.38 message. Paul's point is simple. And it is profound. The Jews who have been saved are not saved by a different means than the rest of the church. Everyone who is saved in the New Testament church is saved the same way. There is no Peter's message versus Paul's message versus James' message. 
There is no difference. They're not preaching separate and different messages of salvation. They are all in harmony. They all preach the same thing. We are saved by grace through faith. Not by works that we could boast about, but by the simple obedience of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having heard the gospel preached, we respond in faithful obedience by relying completely on the righteousness of God and not on our own works. In harmony then with Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, we have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered. You can't divorce obeying from the heart the doing that comes along with the doctrine from salvation. You have to repent of your sins. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And furthermore, you have to continue to live a life of separation unto God. You can't just live any way you want to live. Amen? Would you stand with me? Like I said as at the outset, I, I really appreciate the systematic study of the Word of God because it causes us to confront doctrinal error. It causes us to confront some ideas that if we're not careful, they're so pervasive in the religious world and everything that you hear and see on religious media and even books that you read that if you're not careful, it'll, it'll worm its way into your own way of thinking. And it's very good to stop and reflect on what the Word of God actually says. Not what somebody said the Word of God says, but what the Word of God actually says. It was said to me recently, I read it recently, and, and it kind of stuck in my spirit. Trying to understand the Bible through the viewpoint of somebody else's interpretation is like looking at the prettiest Scene that you can imagine, a mountaintop, a waterfall, wherever paradise is in your mind, on the screen of a computer, as compared to be actually being there. It's a whole lot different. I've been on a mountain, Brother Donnie. I've been up above the tree line. Been up where the, where the elk bugle, I've heard them bugle. It's different than seeing it on my computer screen. It is important that you get into the Word of God and settle for yourself. Solidify your faith in what the Word of God says instead of interpreting the Scripture through the lens of somebody else's view. There are a lot of viewpoints in our world today, and there are a lot of viewpoints that are in error. And we hear them on the radio, and we read them in books, and we, we see them, and they surround us. And it's important that you hear God-anointed preaching in the Word of God, in the house of God. It's also important that you crack open your Bible and read it for yourself. Read the progression of thought. Read the progression of the book of Romans. Understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 3 and how it applies later on in Romans 11. Don't pull Scripture out of context. Divorce it from where it is and then try to build doctrine on an idea that's not in the Word of God. Read it for yourself. That's why we've got a New Testament reading plan for the new year. If you're behind, you're not very far behind. What is this, the 15th day? 16th day, you should be on Matthew 16. It's Matthew 12 today. You're not that far behind. You can catch up. Get on it. You can read Matthew 1 through Matthew 12 in about 30 or 45 minutes. If you read, it's about three and a half minutes a chapter. Do it. Read the Bible. Our challenge to you this year has been rediscover the Bible. Really. Get it off your bookshelf. Dust it off. Put it, put it beside your chair, wherever. But rediscover the Bible. It's the Word of God that's going to save you. Amen.